0: Amen. Well, if you would, take your copy of the Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And if you're using one of the Bibles in uh, the seat there in front of you, this is on page 953 uh, in in those Bibles. Uh, Today we'll be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. As you may recall, this spring, whenever Pastor Bert is out of the pulpit, we've been walking through an occasional series looking at different passages in 1 Corinthians. And out of this letter, we want to consider the idea of life together inside the church as we seek to be a people here at Crawford Avenue who glorify God by living the gospel. So if we are going to be people who bring glory to God by living the gospel, that has many implications for our life together here inside the church. And our passage today is very instructive towards that end. The main idea we'll see today is that everything Christians have has been entrusted to us by the Lord, so it's foolish for us to compare ourselves to each other. We must instead focus on being faithful with what we have been given. So 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, I'll read the text and then pray, and we'll consider this together. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, But I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Amen. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that you have saved us, As we've trusted in your son and you've called us together uh, in the fellowship of the local church, and we thank you that you have not left us to wonder what it looks like uh, to live together as brothers and sisters in the household of faith. We thank you for uh, texts like this uh, that uh, instruct us in the way you would have us to go. And so we ask now that you would illuminate uh, your word by your spirit, and we ask that your spirit would apply the truths of your word to our hearts. We pray this in the name of your son, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, as we have noted before, the church in Corinth was not a healthy church. Just the opposite. You could rightly assess that the Corinthian church was a sick church. It was a group of Christians who had genuinely trusted in Christ. It was a real and true church, but it was a church that had many, many problems. And one of the glaring problems in this church was the way that its members were divided according to who their favorite spiritual leader was. And this is one of the recurring themes over the first four chapters of this book. So it's been a number of weeks since we were in 1 Corinthians, so let me just remind you of a little bit of the context here. Back in chapter 1, starting in verse 10, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree— And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. And then flip over to chapter 3, starting in verse 2, Paul writes, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh, behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human So, this is one of the threads through these first several chapters of 1 Corinthians, is this particular problem in this church of uh, its members being divided, being grouped into factions. And rather than being one united body uh, in Christ, the church at Corinth uh, was broken up. You had one tribe over here, and you had a pod over here, and you had this camp over here. And they all identified with who their favorite teacher, who their favorite apostle was. And what's the the problem with this? In the verses we just read, Paul points out this is the way people outside the church behave. There's nothing uniquely Christian about what you're doing. Even non-Christians can divide themselves up into factious little groups. This is the way life works when you're living in the flesh. It is not the way that life works for those who are living in the Spirit. Rather than being a cohesive body working together in harmony, they were fractured. They were separated from one another. They were walled off from the very people they were supposed to be closest to. And this factiousness seems to have been especially evident in the way that they judged the effectiveness of their spiritual leaders. So, we've mentioned a few of the names we see here already. Of course, the Apostle Paul is mentioned in this letter, as well as Peter or Cephas. And then there's this man named Apollos. We see him referenced a few other times in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 18, for instance, we learn that this man was a Jew from Alexandria in Egypt. And we read there that he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. And he was known to the churches in Ephesus and in Corinth as one who could demonstrate convincingly from the Old Testament that Jesus is the Messiah. So lots of folks really liked Apollos. But Paul, by contrast, it seems that some, at least in Corinth, really didn't care that much for Paul. They preferred Apollos. He was, after all, more eloquent. Or maybe they preferred... Peter, maybe he seemed a little more down-to-earth. They could really kind of relate to him more than they could Paul. Of course, there were those who were like, I don't need any of those apostles, I'll just follow Jesus. As you read through 1st and 2 Corinthians, it becomes evident that one of the things Paul is doing as he's writing these letters uh, is defending his own ministry because the Corinthians are so critical of him. You get little glimpses of this here and there, First uh, Corinthians one seventeen. Uh, Paul acknowledges that his own preaching among them was not with words of eloquent wisdom. He says, I know I'm not an impressive teacher in person. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 3 and 4, he says, I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling in my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. He says, I know I'm not a great orator, maybe like Apollo says. Especially clear is 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, and Paul says there, For they say of Paul, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech is of no account. Paul says, I know what y'all are saying about me behind my back. I know that y'all are not that impressed with me. And so some of the Corinthians have concluded, Paul's just not the guy for us. And this type of division is resulting in disunity within the church. So, with that as kind of the background, Let's uh, look more closely now at our passage for today. Uh, Outline uh, for our text today, we've got uh, just three points. First point is gospel servants, verses 1 and 2. Second point is accountable to Christ, verses 3 through 5. And then third point, the folly of boasting, in verses 6 and 7. So, gospel servants, verses 1 and 2. Paul says this is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. So the Corinthians have a wrong view of Paul and of the other apostles. Paul's going to correct them. So verse 1, he says, not the way that you've been thinking about us, but this here, this is how you should be thinking about us. Now, you might expect Paul to make a little bit of a power move here, right? He is the Apostle Paul. He wrote most of the New Testament. So you might expect him to say, you guys are disrespecting me, and this is how you should regard me as the great Apostle Paul. But of course, that's not what he says. No. How should they regard Paul? As a servant of Christ, as a steward of the mysteries of God. Now, the word servant here is interesting. In the original language, uh, this is uh, a different word for servant than is used elsewhere in the New Testament. And the word that Paul selects here, as translated servant, is a word that was used in the ancient Mediterranean world to refer to an under rower on a particular type of Greek or Roman warship. So I've got a picture here of the type of ship he is referencing. Uh, this is called a trireme. And it's a ship that was notable for the three rows of oars you can see there. Uh, On either side of the ship, three rows of oars. And each row was powered by an individual person. And that person was called an under rower. So not the captain of the ship up top. I'm not sure what the titles would have been of the the guys up on the deck, but they clearly are the more important people, uh, uh, it would seem, the people with the authority. Uh, But Paul doesn't identify himself with those guys, with any position of distinction or authority. But no, Paul identifies himself with the the men, many, many men, uh, down in the belly of the ship, hidden away, kind of dark, I'm sure, miserable working conditions. And all they are doing is following the instructions they are given. So you think about the guy on the bottom left wearing the the red outfit there. Paul says, that's what I'm like. I am the Apostle Paul, and I'm one of these guys down in the belly of the ship simply doing as I'm told. I am an under rower. I am a servant of Christ. Paul also refers to himself and the other apostles as stewards. A steward was a housekeeper or an overseer in charge of a wealthy person's estate. Often this person was enslaved, and their job was to make sure that the household and the estate was supplied with food and other necessities and that things just operated well, and uh, the household was running the way it was supposed to run uh, on behalf of the master so that he could uh, uh, tend to other concerns. So household stewards exercised delegated authority, and they were accountable to their master. So look at verse 2. He says, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. So, Paul's saying, in essence, look, guys, I am not the head honcho here. I'm simply doing the task that I've been given by the person who is over me, and I have to report back to the one who is over me as to how I am doing the job I've been given. Now, what is it that Paul and his companions have been left in charge of? They're stewards, not of a household or an estate, but they are stewards of the mysteries of God. So the plan of God that was once hidden and has now been revealed, the message of salvation in Christ Jesus for all who believe, both Jew and Gentile, the good news that anyone who repents of their sins and places their faith in Jesus, the Son of God who was crucified, buried, and resurrected, will be saved from their sins. They will escape from the wrath of God to come. Paul is a steward of this gospel message. One writer points out that the apostles have been given a sacred trust. They are not free to innovate or be creative with what has been given to them. Rather, verse 2, it is required of them that they be found faithful. What is required of Paul is not success in his ministry. What is required of Paul is not an impressive or attractive ministry, but what is required of Paul by the Lord Jesus is that he be faithful with the gospel that has been entrusted to him. If the Corinthians are divided about who the best apostle is, a big part of their problem is that they're misunderstanding the role of these men. So Paul corrects their thinking. He and the others are not aiming to please the Corinthians. Rather, they are servants of Christ, and their only goal is to be found faithful with the task they've been given. One writer says, Paul sees himself as responsible not to the Corinthians or to any human court, but to the Lord alone. He is very much aware that he must render account of his stewardship, and he will not lord it over the Corinthians. He's not going to curry favor with the Corinthians. He is not going to play fast and loose with them. He is not going to deprive them of what God has provided for them. Like a good steward, he will ensure that the right nourishment is provided at the right time. And he has nothing to give them except what he has himself received from his master. So this is a really important truth that Paul wants the Corinthians to understand because this misunderstanding is at the root of so many problems that they're having. So there are many lessons we can draw uh, just from this idea for ourselves today. Uh, First of all, there's a a lesson here, uh, maybe so obvious we may be tempted to read over it. There is a lesson here for us in how we today relate to the apostles. So think about this. There are no apostles walking around among us today. The office of apostle was limited to those individuals who saw the resurrected Christ and were especially commissioned by him to teach on his behalf. But as we think back to the apostles in the early church, we still are faced with the same temptation that the Corinthians were of thinking, huh, I like this one apostle, Peter, but I'm not so sure about this guy, Paul. Paul's got some stuff that's a little bit you know, it doesn't really work today, 2,000 years later, so I'm going to focus on, you know, what Peter had to say, maybe John, and some of what Paul has to say, but we'll have to adjust it a little bit to make it fit uh, the situation we're in today. That's not the way to think about the apostles. Realize how much of our faith rests on the teaching of the apostles. Yes, our faith rests on the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus And how do we know about these things? We know know about them largely through the written testimony of the apostles. And so we are not free, for example, to decide that we'll pay attention to some of what Paul has to say and maybe adjust other parts of what Paul has to say because they're a little bit hard to receive. We're not free to do that. Paul was a servant of Christ. So if we receive Paul's words as they're recorded in Scripture— we receive the words of his master, the Lord Jesus. And if we reject Paul's teachings, we do so to our own peril as really, in doing so, we are rejecting the authority of Jesus himself. There's also instruction here for those of us who are pastors or who may one day be pastors. And this is a sobering reality to realize that Exercising spiritual leadership over God's people is a task given and overseen by Jesus Himself. Pastors today are not apostles, but we are servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God, and it's required of us that we be found faithful. So please pray for us, for your pastors here at Crawford Avenue, that we will be found faithful. For the majority of believers who are not pastors— there's instruction here for how Christians ought to relate to their spiritual leaders, to their pastors. I think of Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. I'll just say to the members of the church here at Crawford Avenue, Uh, On behalf of the elders, thank you for the ways that you love and care for the elders here at this church, the ways that you seek to encourage us, uh, the times that you tell us that you're praying for us, and you look for ways uh, to encourage us in the ministry the Lord has given us. Please continue to do those things. Uh, We're very aware that we are imperfect and that we miss the market times. We're also very aware that we will have to give an account to Jesus for how we care for you. So thank you for the ways that you work uh, to make our ministry a joy. I think there's a a clear application here as well for all of us who are Christians, uh, wherever we may be serving in the church, uh, and how we make use of the things the Lord has given to each of us. So whether it's our spiritual giftings, whether it's our natural talents and abilities, our education, our skill set, our physical resources— We all are stewards of the gospel. We all have received the mysteries of God. Those things have been entrusted to us. There's a real sense in which all of us are nothing more than servants of Christ. So it's required of all of us that we be found faithful. Are you being faithful with the things the Lord has entrusted to you? Again, you can think about this in terms of your spiritual gifts but it's not limited to that. Think about uh, the place that you work, uh, the opportunities that are in front of you to share the gospel message. Think about uh, the job and the income that you've been given. Think about the home that you've been blessed with. Think about uh, the, the fact that you have the gospel message that so many don't. Are you being faithful with what the Lord has given you? You will one day give an account to the Lord. So that was the first part of our outline is gospel servants. Let's look at the second part now, uh, accountable to Christ. We'll see this in verses 3 through 5. I'll read these verses for us again, starting in verse 3. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So up in verses 1 and 2, Paul stated this basic truth. He says, I am a servant of Christ. And now here in verses 3 through 5, Paul unpacks some of the implications of that truth. And specifically, because he is a servant of Christ... The only one who can judge his faithfulness is his master, Christ Jesus. It's not the role of some human court to judge Paul. Of course, Paul knew what it was like to be judged by a human court, right? He did that many times, stood in front of a human court. It's not even the role of the Corinthian Christians as the church to judge Paul. And even beyond that, it's not even the role of Paul to judge himself to make an an assessment about himself. Verse 3 says, uh, Paul says, it's a very small thing that the Corinthians would presume to pass judgment on the apostles. It's inconsequential. They can despise Paul, they can divide over who's the best teacher if they want to, but at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter as far as Paul's concerned. Human judgment is so manifestly not the point that Paul says, even my evaluation of myself is not what matters. And think about this, if Paul's if Paul's final defense of himself were, look y'all, I have carefully evaluated myself. Honestly, before the Lord, as best I know how, and I think I'm doing a pretty good job. I think I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. If that were the case, Paul would be making a human judgment. If Paul's final defense were his evaluation of himself, it would indicate that his authority was a humanly derived authority. But of course, Paul's authority does not come from man. It comes from Jesus himself. And so Paul says, I don't think I've done anything wrong, but really, that's not what matters. Jesus himself is the one who judges me. And just notice here, kind of as an aside, how beautiful is it that this man can say, I am not aware of anything against myself. Do you see here a a glimpse of the radical forgiveness and restoration that are made possible in the gospel? There was a time when Paul loathed Christians. He ransacked households to drag Christians off to jail. He happily stood by and watched while godly men were stoned to death, Jesus at one point said to this man, Why are you persecuting me? And that's the same man who can now say, because of the saving grace of Christ, because of the great mercy of the Lord, he can now say, I am not aware of anything against myself. That same radical forgiveness and the ability to live with a clear conscience and to not be weighed down by past failures... This is ours if we trust in Christ. Our sins are forgiven, and we stand guiltless before the Lord. So Paul has a clear conscience before God. To the best of his knowledge, he believes he is faithfully fulfilling the role he's been given, and yet he is wise enough and humble enough to acknowledge that even that is not vindication for him. What matters is the Lord's assessment. I want us to think as well about this idea that That Paul says, You guys don't judge me. The Lord is the one who judges me. I want us to understand this idea uh, in the larger context of what Scripture teaches because this is something we could misunderstand if we're not careful. Paul is not teaching here that Christians ought never evaluate what is happening in the life of the church. That's not what he's teaching. And we know that's not what he's teaching because in the very next chapter, Paul instructs the Corinthians to take steps related to church discipline, to remove from the church someone who has persisted in sin and refused to repent. The church is instructed there to evaluate the situation, to make a judgment about this person. I know I've observed uh, at, at different times individuals living sinfully and not wanting to be held accountable. Uh, folks in that position sometimes love to cite Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount where he said, Judge not that you be not judged. It's Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Of course, those same individuals don't so much love to reference a few chapters later in Matthew 18 where Jesus gives us the framework for church discipline and instructs the church to remove a person who refuses to repent of sin. So again, the assembled group of Christians is instructed to make an evaluation and to pass judgment. So we can look at the words of Jesus, we can look at the words of Paul, and in both of them we see a warning against judging, and we see instruction to engage in judgment. So what is, what is this uh, judgment uh, that Paul is dismissing here in our passage today when he says, you don't judge me, the Lord is the one who judges me? What is Paul referring to here? We can make uh, just a few quick observations, and it, it seems that the problem in Corinth that Paul is uh, is pushing back against the problem is at least threefold. So, first of all, the Corinthians' judgment of Paul involved taking to themselves authority the Lord had not delegated to them. So, the Lord has, in His Word, delegated to the assembled church the authority to make judgments about who is in the church and who is out of the church. The Lord has given that authority to the church. The Lord has not delegated to the church authority to decide that an apostle of the Lord Jesus is doing a poor job. That's not authority that he has granted. Secondly, we can observe the Corinthians judgment of Paul was resulting in division within the church rather than unity in the church. So as they are making an assessment of Paul, the result was not the unifying of the church, but the exact opposite. It was the fracturing and the splitting apart of the body. So if we think again of uh, what happens in a, a situation of church discipline, those things are intended to promote and to protect the unity of the church. So, over in chapter 5, verse 7, Paul explains the church needs to pass judgment. They need to remove from the church someone who is sinning sexually and has refused to repent. And why? He says, because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. The unity of the church is too important. Don't tolerate unrepentant sin because it will spread and it will harm the church. But what's happening here with the Corinthians judging Paul Uh, it is resulting in disunity. It has the ability to tear the church apart. And so Paul can dismiss it outright. Third observation we can make, the Corinthians' judgment of Paul and the other apostles is rooted in pride and not rooted in love. And those things can be understood to be mutually exclusive. They don't go together. Where there is pride, there is not love. And where godly love abounds, there is no room for pride. So if you consider Matthew 18 that we referenced a moment ago, the passage where Jesus teaches on church discipline, you'll see that those instructions come in the larger context of teaching about relationships of reconciliation and forgiveness. So the framework even of church discipline is one of loving one another and seeking forgiveness and restoration of relationships. It's intended to promote the unity of the church and is not rooted in pride, but is rooted in love. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 6, Paul says he is teaching these things so that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. What does he say later in chapter 13 verse 4? Love is not puffed up. The Corinthians' judgment of Paul and Apollos and the other apostles is not rooted in godly love. It is rooted in selfish pride. And so judgment based on arrogant pride has no place in the church. So when Paul says, you don't judge me, God judges me, let's be careful to understand it rightly. I also want us to notice in verse 5, Paul's focus on the future and on eternity— and it's so instructive for us how Paul responds to the, the very familiar experience of being criticized by other people, being judged and wrongly assessed uh, even by other Christians. Paul responds by situating the whole thing in the context of eternity. And so much of the Christian life really only comes into focus when you think in terms of eternity. And verse 5 is one example of that. He says, do not pronounce judgment before the time? before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart, then each one will receive his commendation from God. So Paul responds to uh, what amounts to injustice and a wrong assessment in his own experience. He responds to it by looking forward and the certainty of true and right judgment yet to come. Christian if you are walking in righteousness and it still seems that things are not going well and it feels like no one sees the injustice could very well could be that you are enduring take heart and know that the Lord sees the Lord will bring it to light and he will assess the right purposes of your heart and you will receive from the Lord the good that you are due psalm 37 commit your way to the Lord trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. By contrast, if you're walking in sin, maybe open sin, maybe secret sin, tucked away in the darkness, be warned. The Lord sees. The Lord will bring it to light, and he will assess the sinful purposes of your heart, and you too will receive from the Lord what you are due Psalm 94, the wicked says, The Lord does not see, the God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dullest of people, fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? The brevity of life, the certainty of death, the certainty of standing before the Lord in judgment. These are not vague philosophical ideas to Paul. They are so certain to Paul that his entire life and ministry are built around the reality of what is yet to come. And we would do well to follow his example. Our third and final point this morning is the folly of boasting. The folly of boasting. This is verses 6 and 7. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So verses 1 and 2, Paul stated a basic truth. I'm a servant of Christ. 3 through 5, he unpacks some of the implications of that truth. Now verses 6 and 7, Paul is applying these things to his readers. The things he taught them ought to affect their lives, and that's what he's explaining here. Paul has spoken most pointedly to the way that the Corinthians viewed Paul and Apollos and the other apostles. However, these verses are not merely about that situation. We know Paul expects these things to have a broader application because of what he says in verse 6. He wants his readers generally to learn, verse 6, not to go beyond what is written and not to be puffed up in favor of one against another. So not to go beyond what is written, Paul seems to be pointing his readers back to the grounding they have in scripture and warning them to live within the bounds of what God has been uh, what God has revealed to them in his written word. Through the first 3 chapters of this letter, Paul has cited 5 different Old Testament passages, and those passages all relate to the supremacy of God's wisdom over against the small and limited and really pitiful nature of man's wisdom. And so it's a call to humility that's based on the Old Testament Scriptures. This underscores Paul's big concern for the Corinthians that they are arrogant and prideful. So his second lesson for them, verse 6, is that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Don't play favorites. Don't divide over human concerns. And then in verse 7, we see kind of the, the logical crux of the whole thing. What do you have that you did not receive? He says, everything good that you have has been given to you. It was a gift. You didn't work to achieve it. You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. It was a gift from the Lord. So with this being the case, why do you boast as if you had something to do with whatever good things you now experience? This sounds a little bit in your face, it's because that's where Paul's going. Uh, in the rest of uh, chapter four, beyond what we'll get to today, um, you, get, uh, you see Paul getting really confrontational with the Corinthians, and he is calling them to account. So we would do well to ask ourselves some pretty cutting questions. Do some of us feel confident that we're more spiritually accomplished than others in the church? Do some of us secretly despise and have disdain for our leaders. Are some of us jealous of those who know more about the Bible than we do? Do some of us pridefully prefer our little corner of the church while harboring dislike for the rest of the church? Everything good that any of us sees, whether it's in ourselves or in other Christians, anything good it all comes from the same source. It all comes from the hand of the Lord. So do you see how silly it is? How foolish it is to boast or to judge or to compare yourself to other people? To be prideful in what you've been given? To be envious of what you've not been given? The Corinthians were so prideful that they saw even the gifts of God as grounds for boasting. When you see God's gifts as something to brag about, you also tend to see the absence of those gifts as something you have the right to complain about. When we feel ourselves tempted towards grumbling or self-pity or feeling sorry for ourselves, sometimes we press down into that. What we'll find deep in our hearts is a root of pride at the bottom of it all. We're not thinking about Christ and his glory. We're not thinking about loving others and seeking their well-being. We've got blinders on. We can only see ourselves. The Corinthians have many problems, and it's this root of pride and the corresponding absence of love that is at the root of so much of their dysfunction as a church. So later in the same letter, Paul will teach this church that love does not envy or boast. Note note both sides of that. Love does not want what someone else has, nor does it brag about what I have. It does not envy or boast. Love is not arrogant or rude. Both sides again. Love does not brag about myself and think I'm better than everyone else, nor does it act rudely and scornfully towards those who have what I don't. Boasting is rooted in pride, and the antidote to pride is love. Friends, let's learn from the mistakes of the Corinthians And let's heed the instruction of our passage this morning. Many of us have been blessed with an abundance of good gifts from the Lord. Let's focus not on the gifts themselves, not on drawing attention to ourselves, but let's focus on being found faithful with what the Lord has entrusted to us. Many of us can look around and see someone else to whom God has given more good things than He has given to us more gifting, greater skill, more education or knowledge, more responsibility or influence. Let's thank God for what he has given to others and not envy or despise one another. As our church has grown and continues to grow in size, let's work hard to be a church that is marked not by these things, but is marked by love. Love for God and love for one another Let's work to maintain the unity of the body as a whole. Let's not allow room for factions or divisions to creep in. Let's not prefer one over another. Let's focus our attention on Christ, on his glory, and on being faithful to him. Everything Christians have has been entrusted to us by the Lord, so it's foolish for us to compare ourselves to each other. Let's focus on faithfulness with what we've been given, because God will one day evaluate each of us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You as we've sung already and as we've read from Your Word. Uh, we know that everything we have, everything we enjoy uh, is a gift from Your hand. You are the giver of all good gifts. We deserve none of the good that we enjoy either in this life or in the life to come. It's all because of Your kindness, Your mercy, It's all because of your grace in the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Father, we pray that you would continue the good work you're doing here at Crawford Avenue. We pray that you would build us up together as a body of faith. Lord, let us not be like the Corinthians in these things. Let us be marked by unity, by love for you, love for one another, as we together seek to be faithful servants to our Lord Jesus. We pray in his name.